0: Thank you so much for joining our Gen Church Wild podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022. We have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, these events, these gatherings, head over to mygenerations.church to check them out. So what does it mean to be spiritual? How does followership of Jesus look in an era of postmodernism and deconstruction? We're getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians called Masterclass, where the Apostle Paul will help us navigate our cultural moment. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. So the verse we're reading today is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. So if you have a Bible app or you want to open up a Bible, you can do that. I'll just read it along. It's up on the screen here with me as well. For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cepheus and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are all still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So welcome to Masterclass Easter Sunday special edition. I'm excited to talk today and really continue our series on how all of life, should be filtered through the lens of Jesus. So what we've been doing in this masterclass if you're joining us for the for- first time, let me give you a little bit of previously on. If you're joining us for the first, or for this is like n- episode number 22 uh, or 23 actually, someone is keeping track somewhere on what episode we're on of this. What you'll be able to do is, is just reinforce where we are at. So Paul is writing a letter to a church in the first century. And he sees them, he planted it, he started it, and he loves them dearly. But the challenge, as we know, with all of life is sometimes we drift. We move away from the things that are of first importance or should be of first importance. And we start to filter life less through the way of Jesus and more through our own perspectives, and opinions, and philosophies, and oftentimes through this little thing right here. It shapes us more than the way of Jesus. And so what Paul does is he actually writes a letter to this church to help them filter through all of life through this lens that is the way of Jesus. And so, so far in the series, we've talked about gender and politics and the gathering and gifting of the church, divisions and, 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 you know, frictions and relational discord. And we've talked about all these aspects. And at the end of the day, what we've tried to come back and say is Jesus has a word for how you should perceive and live life and how you should treat one another because Jesus has first and foremost loved you. He sees you He welcomes you, he includes you, and he moves towards you. And so if we haven't met yet, let me introduce myself. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here serving this church. And one of the things that we like to say is that we are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. What you will find here in this church is no perfect people. We are everyday people. We're people that wake up, we go to jobs, um, we come home, we have families, we have relationships, we have struggles, we have sin, we have strife. Okay, my pack's closed. I'm walking around with it. See, we got, we got a great team in the back. So when I'm walking around looking goofy and got my pack open, we can come together and support one another. We can be on the same team. We can remind each other. We can call each other out. And not just call each other out, we can call each other up into the way of Jesus. And so I want to make sure, just as I say that, that I'm not alone in my experience this morning. Maybe you've experienced something like this too. Does anyone else have any friends who have a hard time believing the news about Jesus is actually good news? I have a lot of friends that have a hard time believing that the news of Jesus is actually good. Here's what I mean. I've got some friends who every year they like to try this drive-by type mentality and they try to ruin Easter with their clever memes online. You know, things like oh i don't know oh yeah haha here's this piece of information you're crazy for believing this stuff and I'll, I'll get to that here in a moment i'm getting a little ahead of myself but i've also got friends who like the jesus brand or being near jesus when it suits them than actually becoming more like jesus in their character and priorities so two types of friends that you might have them as well. The kind who like the Jesus brand rather than becoming like Jesus, and the types of friends who like the drive-by, drop the bombs, and try to kind of ruin some religious experiences and Easter holidays. Let me give you some version of the conversation with my friends who are always trying to debunk the crucifixion and resurrection. They claim that they throw out a meme, one I saw this week, in fact, that said, fun fact, Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ story predates his existence by several centuries, not to mention civilizations. And if you're scrolling through social, you may keep scrolling, or that type of statement might start to eat at you. Is this accurate? First, there are stories of Horus, Mithras, and others who do have similar narratives. And on the surface, this may throw you That Christianity does not claim to be the first religion to speak of the concept of God's becoming human, dying and then being resurrected in a general sense. There are other religious beliefs rooted in stories that share these themes. But that should not cause us concern or should cause us to lose our faith. Let me pause here. Have you heard of the similarities between the lives and deaths of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy? Both men were concerned with civil rights. Both were elected to Congress in 46, one in 1846, one in 1946. Lincoln was elected president in 60, Kennedy in 1960. Both were slain on a Friday before a major holiday. Both were shot in the presence of their wives and another couple. Of the other couple, the man was wounded, but but neither wife was. Both were shot from behind in the head. Lincoln was shot in Ford's Theater in Box 7. Kennedy was shot in Car 7 of the Dallas Motorcade. Both were pronounced dead at a location with the initials PH. One Peterson House, one Parkland Hospital. The successors of both men were named Johnson. Andrew Johnson was born in 1808, Linda B. Johnson in 1908. Both assassins were privates in the military. John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald was born in 1939. Booth fled from the theater to a library, while Oswald fled from a library to a theater. Both assassins were taken into custody by police officers named Baker. Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater. Kennedy was shot in a Ford car. And the motto of the Ford was a Lincoln. The parallels are uncanny, but no scholar believes that because of these similarities, there is any legitimate connection between the lives and deaths of these two men. And on top of that, nobody questions the existence of John F. Kennedy because he came after Abraham Lincoln. In the same way, it's not reasonable to consider the life and death of Jesus debunked, even if there are some parallels with other mythological figures. And if there are parallels, which when you get into the details, they are very different. What if there was a far more compelling explanation for why they exist? The explanations offered by skeptics that Jesus is a myth, which we should take seriously, and we should handle that with love and care. Or even Christians, that Satan weaved himself into pagan and thought so that when Christianity arose, it would look like a myth. Neither of those really aren't compelling. But what if nothing could be more natural in the plan of God than the existence of such stories? That there is a God that God himself comes to rescue and renew all of creation, specifically people. What if the the word that you long to hear in your soul is that God sees you precisely who you are, the sum total of all that you are, and said, before the world began, that you are loved, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to move towards you, so much so that I'm going to give up the splendors of heaven and come on earth to walk in the midst of the mess so that you know you are loved, you're not alone, and that your story matters, and you can be a part of a bigger story that transcends all time, all people all races, all nationalities, all spans of history. And that is what we celebrate this morning. The culmination, the the truth that that in history, God came, he lived, and he died, and he rose again. In our information age, we're becoming more aware of other worldviews and beliefs. And when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, they're trying to make sense how to live in a world-based world based on off the story of Jesus. In a pluralistic age, they chose Jesus. As we're bombarded with information, again, I could pull, pull out my cell phone, you have more information at the axis of your fingertips. You could Google, you could search, you could research. You have so much information, access to you. And in the midst of this world, in the midst of all of this information, will you, could you, should you choose Jesus? I know as I stand up here and speak, the only reason I am up here is not because it's my job to stand up and deliver some message out of the scripture because I have to or I ought to, but it's really because I get to, because the love of Jesus has so changed my life, but I can't help but let you all know that you are not alone, that that there is an event in history that has radically changed my life, and I hope it has changed, is changing yours, and if you long to experience change in your life, that is the only news that will bring sustainable change and hope in your situation. And so what Paul does is he reminds them of this choice, and Paul even cites that the Life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happens according to the scriptures in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15. Meaning the story of a figure who would provide rescue for humanity would have been passed on, would have been told, would have been foretold for centuries before Jesus even stepped onto the scene. See, we have more access to information than could ever before due to the internet. And if you have serious doubts and concerns, I don't want to minimize that you should take what I'm saying wholesale and don't do your own research. You should seek truth. And we have people here who want to have that real conversation with you. That's why we talk about gen cards. And we say, if you've got questions, even when I'm up here speaking or talking, like write them on your gen cards. Because we have real people who want to talk with you about your real concerns and doubts. And we will hear them and we will listen to them and we will let you know maybe even what we've discovered on our own journey and share some of our own fears, failures, and doubts. But I also often find that because information is so accessible to us that many people really don't have too much concern about the validity of the crucifixion and resurrection. That it's not just some myth. But when you actually get to the real issue, that so many of us don't want the resurrection to be true because it might cause us to change everything about how we operate our lives and perceive the world. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church who struggled with this reality of the resurrection of having any kind of bearing on everyday life. Because it will change how you spend your time. It will change how you, how you spend your energy, your view of the body, what you do before Jesus comes back, how you view work. And Paul is prepared to lay out more logical arguments for the theology of the resurrection and its effect on everyday life. But before he rolls into that argument, before he lays out just a very logical sense of, of why the resurrection matters, Paul stops to share about the lives of people to whom Jesus has personally appeared, which is also proof of the resurrection. Paul says he appeared, Jesus, upon being resurrected to Peter. When you start to get to know the stories of these people, they're everyday people just like you and me. Peter actually betrayed Jesus. He actually was one of Jesus' best friends and turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus still appeared to him. He reminded him, Peter, you are loved and you are called to a greater purpose. Jesus appeared to the 12, some of his dearest friends, who were scared in a room hiding for their lives. They didn't want to go out in public, and yet Jesus appeared to them to let them know that he was alive and his promises were true. Jesus appeared to 500 others of of wishy-washy people who kind of had one foot in, one foot out, who at one minute said, yeah, Jesus, you're king, you're good, you're right. And the next said, we don't trust you, crucify him. It's better to release a criminal than see Jesus reign as Lord and King. And they were angry and mad because Jesus didn't do things the way they wanted him to do them. Jesus appeared to James his own brother, who wanted him to stop ministry. Think about that. Some of you know that's true of your story, where you've had people in your own family stand up and say, stop doing that, or stand in your way, or sabotage maybe a job or a career ambition. Jesus' own brother attempted to stand in his way and drag him out of a house from doing ministry. Jesus, stop doing that. And Jesus appeared. To him, say, no, I'm here. My promises are true. My love is sufficient for you. He appeared to the apostles, to a larger group of leaders. And then Paul says, he appeared to me. He said, someone who is a a murderer, who is zealous in their faith, that his way was right. And he would do anything for that way. And Jesus appears to him. Paul's whole worldview is shattered and has to be redirected through a crucified and risen Messiah. That Paul is no longer king or lord or the the judge of what is right and wrong based on his interpretation of the law. No, everything is filtered through Jesus. See, the power of the resurrection is more than information which Paul will get into. He'll give that logical reason why the resurrection is a necessity. But the power of the resurrection is relationship. How God relates to you. I took my two oldest to see Sonic the Hedgehog on Friday. And there was this quote that really stuck out to me. And it said, being a hero isn't about taking care of yourself. It's about taking responsibility for other people. Jesus took responsibility for you. All the things that you do wrong. I, I know some of us like to pretend like we're good and like we can just tweak the dials and we justify and we try to protect ourselves. But there are things that we just know that we... We do wrong. We we don't live up to the aspirations that we hope to. Even the standards that we have in our own minds, we don't live up to those. There there are things where we mistreat people. There, There are things that we have in our mind that the way we think about people that we know, man, I sure hope that doesn't ever get to light. And all of that, Jesus takes responsibility for. And says, I'll take that on my back. I'll pay the penalty for that wrong, and I'll declare you right through my sacrifice. And that was proved powerful and true because of the cross and the resurrection. And Paul using his choice words about himself feels this deeply. Jesus took responsibility for him, and what he says is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Even as this statement likely applies to his apostleship, The sentiment is true for us. Which brings me to the second type of friend, whom I think is much harder to interact with. The Jesus brand without becoming like Jesus. This type of friend needs the logical argument, but will only be partially effective. It's really hard for them to grasp and live it, because it might mean that change is necessary. And the reality is, is that that external standard that we try to live up to, that maybe we even think others should live up to, that we even try to impose on ourselves, we never live up to it. But it's because of Jesus and his love first for us that can then motivate us and know that we belong, that we are cherished, that we are a part of God's forever family. And out of that identity, we can respond and live because we don't have to chase it no more. We don't have to seek that perfect job or that perfect vacation or, or the perfect relationship or the perfect scenario. We don't have to chase after that. There are things where God may provide where you can be, receive that blessing and that is right and good. But you don't have to chase that to actualize that for yourself That you don't have to base yourself off of your significant other. You don't have to base yourself off of your your title at work. You don't have to base yourself off the car you drive or how much money is in your bank account or how your kids are doing, whether or not they listen to you or not. Because Lord knows as a parent, that is one of the most frustrating things. But you don't have to base your identity off of how your kids interact and act. But you can base your identity off of who Jesus says you are and live out of that, which then allows you to love people to give extend grace and personal favor to others Amen. and where Jesus isn't just one of my preferences like a dial I turn on depending on the circumstances or a shirt I try on when I'm just trying to get it just right that it's not an on and off switch that we can turn on when it's the sum total of our received identity then there's no on and off switch and then there's no tweaking dials then we can simply, live and we have people in our life and this may even be you who are seeking an answer that only Jesus can provide because that constant brand change the constant tweaking of the dials the constant chasing of the identity never produces lasting joy I got a slide I want to show you real quick someone's really good at math, right? Actually, the the difference between these two things was instant in your mind. You probably didn't even realize it. When you looked at the math, you instantly started to think, that's either too hard, or I'm going to solve this. And you went into cognitive mode. (laughs) The picture on the bottom, you saw that, and you instantly knew that that was joy that that was happiness. There was very little cognitive thought that had to go into your mind to say, those people are happy. They're delighted. And you may not even wonder, how did you figure that out? What's crazy is if, you know, we can kind of teach the top one to a computer, you find out it's much more complex to teach the bottom one how to read those facial expressions that delight and that joy to a computer and we have found out in our in our study of scripture and even in brain science that joy the feeling of well-being in the deepest part of our soul is primarily relational it's not some formula you can get right it's not some formula you can try to manipulate all the circumstances that when you see someone's face and they smile you feel relief. They're glad to see you. And our greatest challenge is to think less about the God who's trying to get us to do all the right things, to manipulate the formula, to to twist and turn all the right dials, and to start seeing God as the Father who smiles at us. Each and every week, we've been saying a a prayer benediction at the end of our gathering. It says, may his face shine upon you. May his be gracious to you. And what we're trying to paint the picture in our mind is that when God sees you, He's not asking you to do a formula. He's actually He's saying, I delight in you. Delight in me. Yeah. Yeah. And when we recognize that He delights in us and we can delight in Him, something just unlocks in our brain that we can truly be relational and when we remove ourselves from relationship with God or with others, we will lose joy. Some of the indicators, lack of joy, is you get fixated on your problems. You're trying to wait for people or problems to go away, that the, you're unable to imagine relational solutions for problems, that oftentimes we feel isolated and alone, that it's all up to you, or that you experience negative emotions more intensely. And with the good news of Jesus, What Paul wants these Corinthian church people to hear and what I want us to hear today is that our God is a relational God and moves towards us and moves towards us in Jesus. And he proved who he said he was and the type of God that he is through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection. He did all that to prove that he delights in you. And when we distance ourselves from relationships with others, when we distance ourselves from relationship with Him, our joy deteriorates. And we try to fill it with all kinds of other things. And oftentimes we even, we even erect barriers that if we think well, if we can get things just right or we can do things just right, we're actually putting barriers up between us and Him. And in and through the cross, He removes the barriers between us and Him. He has already removed that barriers, that he is with us, that he laid down his life for us. And the good news of what Jesus has done in history does not remove us from the mess, nor provides the exhaustive answers. But in the midst of the mess, in the midst of relationship, in the midst of circumstances of life, he gives us joy. See, it was the joy set before him that Jesus was able to endure the cross because he knew it was on the other side of the mess. He knew what was on the other side of of the sacrifice. He knew what was on the other side of difficulty. And he didn't try to circumvent that. He went through that for us because on the other side was a resurrection. And this creates a bond. This creates a movement that says the grace of God, his personal and purposeful favor must impact our lives so that there's actual change so that when we see difficulty, when we see challenges, when we see relational strife, that we don't attempt to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and charge forward on our own willpower and effort and energy, but we actually lay down our life more to love, to serve more as He has done for us and what that always does. And we learn to do that and we learn to delight in other people as God has delighted in us. It creates a bond that goes beyond feelings. It creates a bond that goes beyond circumstances. It creates a a joy That when you see someone walk in the room, you're not instantly head down or phone out or walk away. It's a, I'm going toward them. I'm excited to hear about how their week is. I'm excited to to hear about what's going on. Or maybe even you're grieved because you know that there's something going on that's difficult or traumatic. But you don't run and hide because you know it's difficult, but you move towards Because you know, out of that relationship, when you love and serve, when you think about them, that at the end of the day, it produces a joy, a supernatural joy, a blessing that comes from Jesus. And he proved that to us in his resurrection. But we believe the lie oftentimes that Christianity will steal our joy. In fact, one of the great theologians and great authors C.S. Lewis, his primary objection to Christianity was that it would steal his joy. He had a conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien, one of his dear friends before he was a Christian. And Tolkien, author of, you may know as Lord of the Rings, pointed out that myth and history are, are, are not all that removed from each other. That Lewis's problem lay not in his rational failure to understand God as he had already acknowledged his existence but in his imaginative failure to grasp God's significance that a worldview that included the story of Christ gave life more meaning adventure and romance not less just as speech is a, an invention about or is an invention about I, objects and ideas so myth is invention about truth tolkien told him we have come from God and inevitably the myths woven by us through, though they contain air, will also reflect a splintered fragment of true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Our myths may be misguided, but they steer, however shakily, towards the true harbor. In other words, instead of being wholly false or purely satanic distractions, the stories Lewis cherished were shadows, anticipations of the full truth. Lewis wondered if Christianity was just another myth or whether the Gospels were merely fairy stories. And Tolkien explained that, in a way, they were the miraculous births, adventures, heroes, and happy endings. But there was one critical difference. That the one about Jesus, the big story, was true. That that story actually happened. And Christianity was the best of both worlds. It was a fairy story, incarnate legend and in history, meeting as one. Christianity was, Tolkien said, the one and only place where transcendence, the joy myths created in us, the things we long for It's the reason we go to movies, to hearken our souls up, to think that there could be a better world. It's, it's hopeful that there may be, there is a rescuer out there who can solve the problems. We long for that. And in Jesus, the reality, the longing of our heart and the reality of history collide. So romanticism and rationalism together were the paths on which Lewis came to Christ. He said yes to Jesus because he needed to know the facts were true, but also there was a bigger story There was a bigger narrative, that there was a rescuer that could satisfy the desires of his heart. When we live our story, when we tell our story, the question I have for us, Generations Church, is, is Jesus a brand we throw on, or are we becoming more like him? Are the stories we tell how we're the hero of our own lives, or that he's the hero of our life, that he is our rescuer, that by the grace of God, I am what I am, in spite of myself at times, and becoming like Jesus starts with joy, delighting in him as he delights in us, and Paul even cites his effort, he says, I worked harder, I tried, but said at the end of the day, he credits the sustaining work of Christ in him. The reason why is that gratitude is the first step of building joy. Some of you have a challenging time, I know I do as well, of relating to God well. Sometimes God feels distant or uninterested, or it's just not quite as present as we'd ought him to be. But our first step into returning that delight, building that joy, is gratitude. Gratitude for who He is and what He has done in the identity that He has given us. And that gratitude of God can produce change in us. See, it's more than information. It's formation into His likeness. And though we have more access to information than more than other, more information won't defeat death. But Jesus did. And so for Generations Church, we've got to be people of gratitude first and foremost, for the gratitude of Jesus each and every day, each and every week. That's why we take communion. It's not a religious ritual that we do just because that's what you do when you come to church. We do it to try to jog our minds and our realities that we should be grateful for his sacrifice for us and how that should charge us and change us as we live and interact in the world. And gratitude for the grace of God in your life spilling into another's life. Just imagine how much joy we could generate as a church. If one of us, just one of us sat down this week and wrote a thank you letter to the person maybe who introduced you to Christ. Or maybe wrote a thank you letter to the the person who was the most persistent friend in your life. Said I'm here for you no matter what. Imagine what kind of gratitude, imagine what kind of change that would generate in the world. To receive something that says, your story, what you did in my life mattered. Thank you. We'll begin to extend the grace that we have received and make a tangible difference. Maybe that gratitude or that invitation will actually call someone to say yes to Jesus in a more purposeful and profound way themselves to say I want to be a part of a church I want to be part of a family that that does persistent gratitude that is thankful for every little thing and as we build that joy we can point not to how we're so great but because of how he was so great That we will extend the grace that we have received first and foremost. That we'll be patient with the teachings of Christ with others. Knowing that the same work that he has done in us, that he can do for others. That we will be gratitude and seek to build that joy and that connection with others. To be relentless about inclusion because he has relentlessly included us. Even when we had all the information and still said that wasn't quite good enough. That we'll begin to help people belong. We'll see stability when things go wrong. That we'll see people who experience gratitude and joy. When we live and love well, we'll see people be themselves, not some shadow self, because they'll be in healthy relationships with God, with others. And we'll see people f- be free to share their hearts with God and others. That you're included and invited to be a part of the Forever Family. And that we have been adopted into it because of the cross and resurrection. Thank you, Lord. And the Forever Family is formed first by God and expressed and experienced through joy. Charity's going to come up here in a moment and guide us into how we are going to respond. And I wasn't sure if I was going to include this but it's been rattling around in my head all week. I've been watching old episodes of Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> and the entry song goes something like this. I won't sing it, but I'll say it. It says, Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away all those nights when you've got no lights, the check is in the mail and your little angel hung the cat up by its tail and your third fiance didn't show. Sometimes you want to go. And then at the, the key line kicks in where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. There's a place where everybody knows your name and that's in God's family. You belong in that family. You're not forgotten. You're not alone. You don't worry, you gotta worry about all the troubles. And even when you wanna get away, it's okay. You can bring your baggage here. You can lay them down at the cross. Because on the other side of a cross is a resurrection. And because of that resurrection, no matter who shows up, we are sure glad you came. And I want you to know that when we say that Generations is a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family because of Jesus for generations to come, we want to tell that story. of The cross and resurrection for generations to come. To let people know that they are a part of the family. And they can be known by God and by us. And maybe get a taste of that joy and that belonging that you so desperately desire. Let me pray, and then Charity's going to help us respond. God, you are good. Right now, I come to you. I pray that as we sing, as we respond, as, as as we move, that we reflect on who you are and what you have done for us, that we express gratitude first and foremost for you, and we allow that to transcend all our relationships and who we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.